Okay, so we're picking up at chapter 10, just a brief review where we've been so far. We looked at the Holy Scriptures in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we, after looking at various points about Scripture, we looked at God Himself, of God and the Holy Trinity, of the decree of God in chapter 3, um, concerning divine predestination. Chapter 4, we looked at the work of creation how God created all things of nothing in the space of six days, and then the other major work of God in chapter 5, God's providence. Chapter 6, we looked at the fall of man, of sin, and the punishment thereof. And chapter 7, we looked at the doctrine of God's covenant with man, uh, first with Adam, and then man making himself incapable by that first covenant, God making a second, which naturally led us to look at Christ, the mediator. And then chapter 9 was of the doctrine of free will. And this preparing us now for the doctrine of effectual calling by recognizing the status of man in his fallen condition, specifically with respect to his will. Now chapter 10, starting at paragraph 1 there. We read, all those whom God hath predestinated unto life, and those only, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call, by his word and spirit, out of that state of sin and death, in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving them an heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. Now, several passages, of course, we've been looking at Ephesians 1, and we'll look at Ephesians 2 this coming Sabbath in our scripture readings, and you'll recall that these things are exactly what we looked at in Ephesians 1. The predestinated are called by God and effectually made partakers of all these benefits that we see. So the first primary doctrine here is that only the elect are effectually called. That's the first primary doctrine. Only the elect are effectually called. Now, of course, this is consistent with what we've looked at thus far concerning the predestination of God, the doctrine of election, his decree, and his covenant, it wouldn't make sense that God would effectually call those who hadn't been chosen before the foundation of the world. That would not be consistent with what we read in Ephesians 1 or in Romans 8. So that's the first primary doctrine, only the elect are effectually called. And the second is, effectual calling is consistent with human nature. So effectual calling is consistent with human nature. And what I mean by human nature is not man's fallen nature. The human nature that effectual calling is consistent with is the nature that God created. So you'll notice there it talks about um, enlightening their minds. That's one aspect of human nature that God made is man's mind. Also referred to here as the heart. 
So you'll notice the, the confession talks about the mind to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone, explains what that means and giving them a heart of flesh. In the Bible, the heart is what we call the mind or the thinking capacity. And the will is the secondary function of the heart, but the primary function of the heart is thinking. So that's one aspect of human nature. Then there's the will, renewing their wills and determining that, them to that which is good. And that's why chapter 9 was on free will and the bondage of the will is because now in effectual calling, God releases that bondage and renews the will. So this is a second aspect, man, man's mind and man's will. And God, by his grace, makes man willing. Just like the reprobate, they go to hell because they want to. They choose it. It's the thing that they want. It's consistent with their desires. So the godly, who are determined to eternal life, God makes them willing. He operates consistently with the nature of man as created by God. Paragraph 2. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, who is altogether passive therein, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. Okay, so here, first thing, primary doctrines. The first primary doctrine, effectual calling, is monergistic. And that just means the work of one. So effectual calling is monergistic. M-O-N-E-R-G-I-S-T-I-C. Monergistic. Monos is one or alone, and ergos is a work or an accomplishment of some work. So that's the first primary doctrine. It's of God's free and special grace alone, and he's not moved to it by the faith or the works of men. Man is passive completely until, and this is the second primary doctrine, regeneration enables a positive response. So a person might be called outwardly by the gospel and the preaching of God's word or in conversation with a believer. They might be presented with the gospel claims, but they cannot positively respond to them unless God gives new life by his spirit. So regeneration enables a positive response. You'll see there, he is altogether passive until being quickened and renewed. So made alive, made brand new by the Spirit of God. And of course, we'll see this in Ephesians 2. So paragraph 1, Ephesians 1 is a passage that it bases that on. And then paragraph 2 bases on Ephesians 2. And then third paragraph, elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. So this is a very comforting passage in our Confession of Faith based off of some key texts of the Bible and the Old and New Testament. Um, One of the primary doctrines that that scripture teaches about our children 
is that God makes a promise to Christian parents, to those that believe, that he will be God to them and to their children. So when we talk about elect infants, we're not necessarily saying there's some kind of blind blanket statement that's made about all human beings. So there was a question, what about those who are murdered by abortion? What is their status as it reflects this specific teaching? And the way that I would answer that is to say that Scripture holds out no comfort to unbelieving parents, none whatsoever. In fact, um, if you carefully read the Old Testament, you find that the Canaanites, when God sent in Israel to assume their land and to possess their land, he told them, I want you to kill men and women and little children. And why is that? Well, because the Canaanites were under a curse because of their wicked and lawless ways. So there was no hope for them. God had put them under a ban, and that went from the oldest to the youngest of their number. So parents who don't believe in God and who despise his ways, their children are cursed together with them. That's all we can go on is what God has revealed, that the wicked and their seed are cursed by God. On the other hand... The scripture constantly holds out hope to believers that even if David, for example, conceived his child in adultery and covered up the adultery with murder, yet being a believer, he had hope that when he died, he would go to see his child. So there was hope for him because God said, I will be God to you and to your seed. So when we read about elect infants dying in infancy, we can't really offer any scriptural hope to unbelieving parents and say, well, your child's going to heaven because they died. No. Our hope is that God made a gospel promise, I will be God to thee and to thy children. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. That's not true of unbelievers. Unbelievers don't have that hope. They don't have that promise. And so sadly, as we find through the whole Bible, because man is cursed because of his sin, If God says to the wicked, you and your children are under a curse, we ought to take that seriously. And on the other hand, if God says to the godly, you and your children are blessed, we should also take that very seriously. Now, the confession does not say, as some other confessions say, that all of the children of believers who die in infancy automatically are saved. There are Reformed theologians who hold to that position. Our confession is very cautious. It gives the basic teaching that there are such instances, but it doesn't categorize it and seal it off and, you know, yes in every case, because we don't actually know that. But what we do know from Scripture is that there is a general doctrine that God is the Savior not only of those that believe, but also of their children together with them. And that's our hope. That's all we can go off because that's what God has revealed. We don't know his secret things. We only know those things revealed. So just to answer about abortion. Okay, if you have a wicked parent who hates God and murders their infant, what would you expect to be the condition of their child? Well, the biblical expectation is that that child is under the wrath of God just like the parents because God curses to the third and fourth generation them that hate him it would follow logically that there doesn't seem to be any biblical warrant to hold out hope to those that murder their infants. It seems just the opposite, that they have done something extremely 
harmful because humanly speaking, if you let that child live, there might be some hope for them that they might come to repentance. Unlike you, their wicked parent, they might actually come to faith in Jesus Christ, but you snuff them out before they've even had an opportunity to hear the gospel. So I could not hold out hope, and I know that's maybe an unpopular uh, position. A lot of pro-life people are more emotionally based rather than biblically based, but the only thing we know from the Bible is those who are wicked beget wicked children, and their children are cursed along with them, unless there's some amazing movement of God to undo that. And then also just note here, um, those who are, as the primary doctrine, the Spirit regenerates those chosen but incapable of outward calling. So the Spirit regenerates those chosen, but incapable of outward calling. And this could be retarded people, uh, brain-damaged people. Again, within the parameters of what was stated previously, there are exceptions where God can move outside of the visible church. He's not tied to it, but it's not a rule that the Lord has tied himself to by making any kind of promise. All right, paragraph four. Others, not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word and may have some common operations of the spirit, yet they, are never, yet they never truly come unto Christ and therefore cannot be saved, much less can men not professing the Christian religion be saved in any other way whatsoever, be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion they do profess, and to assert and maintain that they may is, a, is very pernicious and to be detested. All right, so the primary doctrines here, first is non-elect men may have common operations of the Spirit. So non-elect men may have common operations of the Spirit. And again, it's talking about those who have heard externally the word. This would be the uh, general call of the gospel. Effectual call is where it actually accomplishes what God intends in his predestination. General call is where the words sound in the ears. It's a command to repent and to believe. And a presentation of Christ as the grounds on which you should believe. The object of your belief. So, non-elect men, in hearing the words of God, they can have these common operations that are not saving, that don't lead to eternal salvation, but lead them to some kind of profession of faith, etc. But as it identifies here, they never truly come to Christ. And then, in the second half, the second primary doctrine is there is no ordinary possibility of salvation outside the church. And we'll look at that again in more detail uh, when we come to the chapter on the church, but, or the visible versus the invisible church. But basically, if a person does not profess to be a Christian, that is, they're outside of the visible church, there's really no hope for them. Like we were talking about with paragraph 3, there's no hope for those who are murdered by their wicked parents in the womb because the curse of God rests on the wicked and on their children, whereas the blessing of God rests on believers and their children. So we don't have a promise from God that says, you know all these people outside of God's church who never heard the gospel, who never 
knew about Jesus, you know, they're all going to be saved because God's a big softy like you are. That's idolatry, where people project themselves, their feelings and emotions, and they say, God should like what I like, and God should hate what I hate. And God says the opposite. The true religion is, well, you ought to love what I love, and you ought to hate what I hate. Idolatry says God should be like me. He should reflect my image. I'll make a God after my own image. So many left-leaning or leftist sort of people will say, well, you know, all roads lead to Rome. You know, just all you got to be is sincere. That's what it's saying, right? They frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion they do profess. So they'll be saved by their own religion is the contention that this is attacking. Now, the reason why this is so offensive to God is that it is an undercutting of his justice. It's saying that God doesn't require a satisfaction of his justice. He just needs you to be sincere, and he'll accept your piddling little sincerity as a substitute for perfect obedience to his law. Because every religion, other than the true religion revealed by God in Jesus Christ, is a false religion and therefore a violation of the first and second commandments. So what it's really saying is, very satanically, man can be saved by sinning. That's what it's saying. By my false religion, I can be saved. Well, that's saying you can be saved by sin. That's Satan's version, which is why it says this is very pernicious and to be detested. Why? Because God hates that idea. That's Satan's idea. That's not God's. Men must come to faith in Jesus Christ, and if they don't even profess to be Christians, we can hold out zero hope for them that they will be saved by God. And so that's what this is saying. There is no ordinary possibility. If you don't even profess to be a member of Christ's church, to believe in Jesus, to be baptized into his body, there's no hope for you that, that you can say, well, I'm, let me assure you, you're going to heaven. No, that's not, that's not how this works. That's not good news. That's bad news because then God's justice is eradicated and as we'll look at when we talk about justification, that would make God into uh, an unjust creature. He would stop being God in order to save people, which is what wicked people want. God, stop being you so that I can be God and I can save myself and be my own savior. Okay, any questions? Casey, you're a little late in the ballgame. We did answer a question about abortion, which was given to me before the class. But did you have any other questions? No. David, do you have any questions, sir? Uh, no, sir, not at this point. All right, chapter 11 then, justification or of justification. Paragraph 1. Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins, and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them, as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them. They, receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. Okay, so we'll look at this actually in... Um, Ephesians 2, this coming Sabbath, this whole part at the end especially, 
But first primary doctrine, and there are several here because there's a lot packed into this, the effectually called are also freely justified. So the first primary doctrine, the effectually called are also freely justified. And Lord willing, we'll see this in Romans 8. Paul draws the chain of salvation, the golden chain we call it, from election in eternity past to glorification in eternity future in Romans chapter 8 at the end there, which they cite here, Romans 8.30. And what he does is he uses all of those in what's called the aorist tense, which if you think about verb tenses, it's in Greek it's a little different. But one thing about an aorist verb is that it refers to a point in time as usually a completed action. Future tense is yet to occur. Perfect tense already happened and then it has effects for now. Aorist is just a point in time. Something occurred once for all. That's the idea. So when we talk about those whom he predestinated, that's aorist, it happened at a point in time. He also called, happened at a point in time. Called or justified, happened at a point in time. Justified or glorified. So he ties together from eternity past to eternity future as if all of those had already happened. Because once you get the first link in the chain, you have the whole chain is what Paul is saying. Everything in between is yours because you have Christ and Christ is the one in whom you were elected before the foundation of the world. Then you also have justification and you have eternal salvation. You have perseverance and, and glorification. So it's tying together the links here in the first part. The effectually called are also freely justified. Second, primary doctrine. Justification is by pardon and accounting and accepting. So justification is by pardon and by accounting and accepting. So this is answering the question, how does God justify? First is, whom does God justify? Those effectually called, he freely justifieth as well. How does he do it? Well, he does not do it by making us righteous, by infusing righteousness into us, adding new qualities to your character. That is not the work of justification. We could say that that's part of effectual calling, that that's sanctification where God changes your inner man and enables you to embrace the call of the gospel. But justification is by pardon. First, because Jesus died on the cross, your sins are forgiven you. That's the first thing, pardon. Because the law demands two things. One, the law demands perfect obedience. And two, the law demands a curse on those who disobey. So pardon is taking care of the curse. It's saying you're no longer cursed because all your sins were placed upon Jesus. So that's the first part of justification, the pardon of sins. Because justification has to do with the law. Are you right before God's commandments? Have you obeyed? Because cursed is he who continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law. And if you would have life, do the commandments. If you would be justified, keep the commandments. So that's the other thing. Accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. Okay, so this is the twofold imputation. 
our sins imputed to Christ, his righteousness imputed to us. And there I think they cite 1 Corinthians 5, or 2 Corinthians 5.19 and 21. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He was made sin not by having sin infused into him and becoming a sinner, we have the righteousness of God. We're made the righteousness of God, not by having the righteousness of God infused into us so that we become righteous men in justification, but rather he was made sin by imputation and we are made the righteousness of God by imputation. Does that make sense? Because if you said that, well, we're justified by the infusion of righteousness, then you'd have to say, well, Jesus was made a sinner by the infusion of sin. God forbid we should even think that. No, he was holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners. The imputation of our sin, his accounting, his reckoning among the transgressors is how we are reckoned. Same method by imputation. My sins imputed to Christ, his righteousness imputed to me. That's how he became sin. That's how I become the righteousness of God. So, justification is by pardon. That's my sins imputed to Christ on the cross. And by accounting and accepting. That's his righteousness imputed to me. And then the third primary doctrine, justification, is for Christ's sake alone. So, God doesn't say, well, you believe, so I will impute your faith as if it were righteousness. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying your faith is an evangelical work that satisfies the law. That's not what he's saying. The scripture is very clear. Our faith is weak. Our faith is imperfect. Our faith is growing, true believers, but it doesn't meet the demands even of God's perfect commandment to faith. Ye of little faith, Jesus said to his disciples, you're a crooked and perverse and unbelieving generation. So they weren't justified by means of their faith as if their faith were the grounds of their justification. No. Faith receives and rests on Christ. Okay, and his righteousness. With an empty hand reaching out and saying, can I have that gift? The, the gift is not the hands that reach out and receive it. The gift is the thing that God gave. Okay, so, fourth primary doctrine, faith is God's gift, not man's work. Does that mean that man doesn't believe? Of course not. But why does he believe? How does that power come into his possession? Because God freely gives it to him. And we'll look at this in Ephesians 2, 7 and 8, God willing, this coming Sabbath. But we see there, there's a construction, and I'll get into more details with the linguistics, but there's a construction that almost sounds like he's not saying faith is the gift. But it is. He's saying that this faith that you have to believe in Jesus, it's not from yourself. Well, if it's not from me, then where is it from? It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In other words, your faith isn't a work either. It's solely the merits of Christ that we ground our salvation in. Even the faith by which we reach out and grab Christ. You can't have hands to grab hold of Christ and the promise of the gospel if you're dead in your trespasses and sins. If you're lying like a corpse in the grave, you have to be raised to life first. And then you can reach out in faith. Okay, so faith is God's gift, not man's work. And then paragraph two. Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. 
Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. Okay, so the first primary doctrine, faith is the only instrument for justification. We're talking about an instrumental cause, the means by which the sinner comes in contact with the righteousness of Christ, the instrument that does that. Not the grounds for his justification, not the person who actually justifies, but the means by which we lay hold and rest and receive the gift of God's righteousness. So faith is the only instrument for justification. And then second primary doctrine, faith is always accompanied by all other saving graces. Okay, and this would mean because faith is accompanied by the other saving graces, that means that sanctification goes along with it. That means that our hope in God's promises goes along with it. That means that our love for God and his people goes along with it, and even for our neighbor. Faith, hope, and love. So faith is never alone in the person justified. It is alone in the act of justification. That's very important. Faith, as it justifies, is all by itself. Faith, as it exists in the saved sinner, is never by itself. See the difference? As far as God's transacting justification, there's nothing else that can fit in there. You try to bring love in, then you no longer have faith. Because love is the fulfilling of the law, you now have righteousness by keeping laws. So we can't say love makes its way into our justification or otherwise we're making justification by works, which is exactly what is not the case. James says that we're not justified by faith only, but by works also. And what he means by that is, if a person professes to me, I have faith, and then they don't have any works, how can I declare that faith to be valid or to be justified? So it's not a justification of the sinner before God, it's a sinner's justification before men. Can you be justified before men without works? No, you can't. It's impossible. So James is dealing with justification before men. Paul is dealing with justification before God. And if you would be so impious as to take your works and say that you can go before God, well, you're going to hell because you don't believe the gospel. Um, Abraham, Paul says, might have something of which to glory in Romans 4, which we've looked at, but not before God. Abraham might be justified before men. He might be declared righteous, and we might say that's a righteous man. Just like David, he could justify himself before God? Before God? No. Before Saul? Yes. And he does that again and again and again in the book of Psalms. He justifies and declares himself righteous when he compares himself to Saul. When he looks to God, he condemns himself. No man living shall be just in thy sight. If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquity, no man living should be justified. That's what he says before God. But when he says, here's Saul and here's me, guess who's righteous? David is. Every single time. David is righteous. Saul is wicked. So we might be able with James to say, yeah, well, you want to say you have faith? Show me by your works. And you're justified in that claim by the works that you produce. But if you want to take that in front of God, you're not going to end well. Okay, paragraph three. 
Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are justified and did make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to his Father's justice in their behalf. Yet, inasmuch as he was given by the Father for them, and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead, and both freely, not for anything in them, their justification is only of free grace, that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. Okay, so, first primary doctrine is that Christ's discharge of the sin debt was by obedience and death. So again, Christ's discharge of the sin debt was by obedience and death. And this answers, as I mentioned earlier, the two-fold claim of the law. The law requires obedience, do this and live. And the, the law requires death, don't do this and you die. So in order to be a perfect savior, Christ had to do both. He had to fulfill the positive requirement of the law, and he had to suffer under the negative sanction of the law, obedience and death. And that debt of sin that we owed was discharged by those two taken together, not by one of them, without the other. Not simply by obedience, because then the curse is still outstanding. And not merely by the cross, because then the positive duty of obedience is still outstanding. Both are fulfilled by Christ. Second primary doctrine, justification glorifies God's exact justice and free grace. Justification glorifies God's exact justice and free grace. Now, the book of Romans, which we've looked at in extensive detail, makes this point on several key parts of the book of Romans, especially chapter 3. But even if you think about the beginning of the epistle, um, where Paul gives the theme for the book of Romans in chapter 1, he says that he is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for therein is the what? The righteousness of God revealed. So God's, uh, not his inherent righteousness, but his evangelical righteousness, the gift of righteousness through faith in Christ. That's the thing that the gospel focuses its attention on, that God is just, and he will not accept a sinner unless that sinner has a righteousness that meets the demands of God's law. So God is just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. That's another teaching in Romans 4. So these specific statements that the Bible makes about the gospel and how it relates to God is that God is perfectly just and he doesn't lose his justice in the gospel. Every other religion known to man, God has to lose something of his justice in order to be merciful. Because there's never a sufficient payment. There's never a sufficient satisfaction. But in justification, in this truth of what God does to sinners by Jesus' righteousness and by his death, God's justice is completely satisfied. God says, obey my law. Jesus obeyed the law. God says, you're cursed. If you don't, he was cursed in our place. So in both aspects, the fullness of God's justice 
is completely satisfied for those who are united to Christ. Because we're in Him, He accomplishes these things for us. And therefore, God's exact justice, not His sliding scale, oh yeah, well I know you can't obey all the way, so I'll accept your imperfect obedience as if it were perfect. That's the Pelagian or the semi-Pelagian, the Romanist, the Eastern Orthodox, the Mormon, the JW, the Jew, the Muslim. Their gods accept them on a sliding scale, not an exact justice, but on a sliding scale where your piddling little wickedness is presumed to be okay. It's good enough. You tried hard. You know, I'll accept it. Is that how God is? No. God says, I reject it. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. Your piddling little half-hearted obedience does not meet that standard, nor does mine. And that's why the gospel is so necessary. That's why the light of nature and obedience to these other religions will never save anybody, and to profess so is detestable because it affronts the justice of God and says, you, God, get off your throne. Now you accept me as I am. So not only God's exact justice, but His free grace. Mercy and truth have kissed each other. God can be um, just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. He retains that natural attribute while also showing abundance of mercy. These two are reconciled in the gospel. Okay, any questions before we move on past paragraph 3 about chapter 11, paragraphs 1 through 3? David, did you have any questions? Okay, I'm going to assume not. Paragraph 4. God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect. And Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified until the Holy Spirit doth in due time actually apply Christ unto them. Now, you'll recall in Ephesians 1, Paul starts with the Father, choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world, the Son, accomplishing redemption through His blood, and the Spirit, making application and effectually working in us faith and uniting us to Christ. So you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1, and it's structured in that specific way. Now notice here, God, this would be when the scriptures say the God or God, it's usually the Father. But God, the Father, I would say, decreed to save us from all eternity. That's how Ephesians 1 puts it. The Father chose us in Christ. He made this decree. Before the world was even founded, God made this decree. So, first primary doctrine then, is that the decree to justify is eternal, and the accomplishment is in time. The decree to justify is eternal, and it's accomplished in time. So you have the Father decreeing justification from all eternity, and then you have the Son accomplishing redemption in time. He died for our sins, he rose again for our justification. 
And then the second primary doctrine is that elect sinners are not justified until the Spirit applies Christ to them. So there's the working of the Spirit. Elect sinners are not justified until the Spirit applies Christ to them. And this, of course, is uh, very clear in the Bible, but there is a school of Calvinistic thought that when God decreed to justify, that that was the actual act of justification, that we were justified in eternity past. Now, it's, it would be fair to say that it's as good as accomplished. That's true. But by the language of Scripture, we find that sinners are justified by faith, not by election, but by faith. So the instrumental cause is always seen to be faith in the Scripture. And faith is a gift that God gives, but it is also something that sinners do. It's not given to them because they deserve it. It's not given to them because they're good enough. It's not even theirs. It's a gift that God gives in them and works in them. He grants them to believe in Christ. So we don't believe in eternal justification. John Gill is the main proponent of that theory uh, among the 18th century Calvinistic Baptists. Okay. Fifth paragraph. God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified, and although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. Okay, so the first doctrine here is that forgiveness of sin is ongoing. We're taught to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And this is something we're to pray each day. It's one of the main petitions of the Lord's Prayer. So, of course, that means that we need forgiveness of sins each day. Now, um, the second primary doctrine, and I'll talk about the relationship of these two, the second primary doctrine is that the state of justification is unalterable. So a justified sinner cannot become unjustified. It may be that they have real sins that occur and they have not asked for forgiveness and they need to. But that state of justification that they're put into by believing in Christ, that instrument of faith laying hold of his righteousness, that's unalterable. That's perfect. That's eternal. That's the same. It doesn't. There aren't degrees of that justification. Oh, I'll be more justified tomorrow. You might be more sanctified, but you can't be more justified. It's not possible. That's the state of justification. But in terms of our experience of the grace of God and the temporal nature of our existence as humans, there will be sins each day until we die that we'll need forgiveness for. And that's why we're taught to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's why we're taught to receive reproof from others and to give reproof in our turn because all of us are going to sin all the time and many things we all offend James says that's after Jesus died and rose again he said that 
That's still true. There's not a just man on the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. That's still true among all of God's people. So we're going to require ongoing forgiveness of sin, even though God has placed us into this state of justification. And this has caused untold damage in the church when people don't get this distinction, how this works together. They'll say, oh, well, when I was baptized, okay, all my sins were washed away. So, but what happens if I fall into sin? Like, do I lose my baptism? Do I lose justification? And some people say, yeah, that's right. The Pelagians said, yeah, you lose your justification like that. Then you get it back, then you lose it again, do the hokey pokey, and you turn yourself around. It's like they put people on this treadmill of, you're not really sure whether you're actually saved. So they're confusing God's fatherly displeasure and chastisements with the state of justification, and we can't confuse those. They're two very separate things. They're related, because every time a justified sinner falls and begs forgiveness, the forgiveness is afforded to him based off of the righteousness of Christ given to them in justification. So there is certainly a relationship, but they're distinct. They're two different things that we're talking about that the Bible talks about. The state of justification is unalterable, but the fatherly care God exercises in the third place is over those justified. God has a fatherly care that he exercises over those who are justified. He wants them to be conformed to the image of his son, so he's going to chasten us when we do evil. He's not going to let us go like he did to Esau. That's, that's a sign that God hates you. He doesn't chastise you. You can go on in your sin. He won't bother you about it. You just keep on going. It's like if a, a parent does not spank his child, Solomon says it's because he hates him. If you spare the rod, you hate your son. But if you love your son, you chasten him betimes. So same idea, that's just a reflection of God. If God loves someone and he's justified them, he'll spank them when they go astray. If they're in their own righteousness, he lets them go, like wild animals for the slaughter. But God's fatherly care is exercised. You won't lose the state of justification, but you might lose the countenance of God pleasing toward you, the light of his countenance. The knowledge of your justification can wane because it's like God becomes your enemy and darkness covers you. And the scriptures are full of this, especially the Psalms, that God's fatherly displeasure comes against his people when they don't repent of their sins, when they don't confess their sins, when they don't renew their faith and repentance. There will be these hidings. In Psalm 32, it mentions here Psalm 51, classic passages about God hiding the light of his countenance. But the same is true in the New Testament as well. God chastens every son that he receives. Okay, then finally, paragraph 6. The justification of believers under the Old Testament was, in all these respects, one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. So, primary doctrine here. Only one way of justification since the fall. There is only one way of justification since the fall. And this, just to wrap this back into chapter 7 and also into chapter 2, is that because God is just, he could not have a, a third way of justification. It's either by obedience in your unfallen state with Adam, 
or it's by an imputation of righteousness in Christ, there is not a third way consistent with God's being by which sinners would be partially justified by faith and partially justified by works, partially based off of the works of Christ and partially based off of their own. That is ridiculous. That makes God unjust. And so when we say that the Old Testament saints were justified in precisely the same way in all these respects we just talked about, that it's one and the same justification, what we're saying is there's only one God. And he's always the same. And if we make a third justification, we make a second God, a different God, a false God. And this is exactly what Paul says when he's at the end of Romans 3 and he's dealt with total depravity of both Jews and Gentiles. He then comes to show us the gospel way of salvation revealed without the law, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, by faith in Jesus Christ, through the redemption in his blood, And then at the end, he asks the question about Abraham in chapter 4. But before he gets to that, he proves that both Jews and Gentiles are both justified in the exact same way because there's only one God, he says, who will justify the circumcision through faith and the uncircumcision by faith. Because there's only one God, there's only one way of justification. And if we say the Old Testament saints were justified by works and were justified by faith, that they were not justified by Christ, but that we are, we're saying, I don't believe in that one God. That's what dispensationalism, if they're consistent, and they say there was a way of justification in Adam's day, then another one in Noah's day, then another one in Moses' day, and another one in David's day, which they do, they have dispensations of salvation, and it's different in each case. Guess what they're saying about God? There are several gods, and there's one God for Adam, and a different God for Noah, and a different God for Abraham, and a different God for Moses. And God says, I am one, and I will justify both Jew and Gentile in the same exact way. The only difference is the word by and through. If you read there at the end of Romans 3, justify the circum- I think it's the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. That's the only difference. And what's the difference between those two? Nothing. There is no difference. The method of justification has always been one because God is one. There's only one God, and therefore there's only one way of justification. Okay, so that's paragraph or chapter 2 of the Confession, how it ties in with the doctrine of justification here. And then in, in uh, chapter 7 we have there's one covenant of grace with two administrations. That's consistent with this as well. And just to point that out, that's also a consistently monotheistic position, that there's only one God, and that he is immutable, and therefore his, mes- his methods of dealing with men cannot substantially alter so far as their salvation is concerned, because then his justice would be at risk, and he could no longer be God. Now, when it's a matter of his will, and he says, well, I choose it to be this way or this way, that's one thing. But salvation is not merely a matter of God's will where he could say, well, I'll be just today, but I'm going to choose not to be just tomorrow. God cannot do that. He cannot deny himself. He cannot lie. And so therefore, the way and method of justification must be the same. Okay, any questions about these last three paragraphs of chapter 11? Casey? David, did you have any questions, sir?
Okay.